Hello, and welcome to Tammy Ginders. And once again, we have been out and about finding out the answers to those things that we've always wondered about. And a few things you might not have wondered about. We'll be talking about the animal whose name we dare not mention. Another weird and wonderful challenge. And something from Beth. Lord knows what. Where are we starting? Well, can I just say, when we get into the first story, you must not say the word. I really mean it. I can't cope with you saying the word. I uh, oh. should also say we're going to do the challenge at the point of recording today. Oh. So oh. normally we pre-record this. Um, it's a little bit of an experiment, you <laughs> might could say. could possibly go wrong? Goodness only knows. Indeed. Right, well, straight into it then. And, well, if there's one animal, four-legged, greyish colour, furry, that people don't like to mention the other man, it's this one. I can't really mention it, can I? Without further ado, um, well, here we are. Out at St John's, and uh, we've come out to see uh, Dr Richard Selman, because we were wondering about the animal whose name we dare not speak on the Isle of Man. Uh, I I dare not say it. It's spelled R-A-T, but uh, long tail, as it's known widely, uh, an old custom. We might touch on that in a minute, but I was wondering how long they've been around for, to a degree, and I'm sure a lot of people think, the long tail that we might be having problems with now or you might have problems with that your backyard or down the bottom of your garden or something has been here forever not the case yeah i think this conversation has great potential to create massive confusion <laughs> we're not talking here about long-tailed field mice or long-tailed anything else really apart from the long tail so yeah i think everybody else probably knows what we're talking about it's likely to be listening um we believe they probably must have got here around the late 18th century because um, it's stated that they got into the British Isles around the early 18th century and they must have got here fairly quickly and they were noted as uh, one of the things which put paid to the last of the um, so-called puffins the Manx Shearwaters on the calf mm. and that was around late 1700s and early 1800s certainly gone by around about 1820 odd. So before that would there be any RATs, as we say on the other man, with the B, because this is what we're talking about the the brown. I'll say it, I'll take the chance, rat. We're talking about, oh, no. <laughs> we're talking about the, the brown long tail, which is the one which might be sort of in modern terms that causes yeah. all the problems. Or, or Norwegian, which of course it's nowhere near where it comes from. But no, I was going to say. I think probably when they came over to the British Isles, it's thought of as possibly the direction they came <laughs> came there from, but uh, they're Asiatic, as are the black ones that were here before, what we've just talked about. Okay. So what we've got now then is just just one species, realistically, that you're likely to see running around causing problems? It is, although some of them are quite uh, large. Um, <laughs> so you can see them in all sizes. Uh, yeah, It's not always a cat, sometimes it's an RAT. Um, but yeah, there, there was the ship RAT, or otherwise known as the black one, um, which moved around the world with um, wooden ships, and they have been over here, and in the late 1800s, uh, the notes on mammals point out that there are there are said to be occasional black ones occurring, but um, uh, writer hadn't actually seen one of those at the time at the museum. So um, I think they must have been pretty thin even back then, and there haven't been records for many decades. So we presume fairly confidently that the black ones were extinct. Whereas so the brown ones then? were still waging well, war ones. Were they wiped out by the brown ones, or do we not know? They're slightly smaller than the brown ones. 
So I expect that they would be quite readily outcompeted on yeah. the main island tiers. And were they so much of a problem? And again, we sort of it's just a sort of byword now for problems and everything dirty and carrying disease and everything else. And yet, it's not really the animal's fault per se. No, I don't think they could be directly blamed. They were implicated with moving the Black Death around um, as a carrier. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the issue. These are commensal animals. They live closely with man and they can carry some diseases that um, we succumb to as well as them. Have you got a sneaky admiration for them? I must admit, when I see them, I know there's problems with them and people can be plagued with them and they can carry diseases, but I always have a bit of a, an admiration for any species that seems to adapt so readily to live off our rubbish. <laughs> They're mightily impressive. Uh, their ability to live in all kinds of places all around the world where man is, uh, is incredible. And the places they get to. I was very, very lucky to have a few months working in a, in a lodge in rainforest in Peru. Wow. And when I arrived there, there were lots of fascinating animals, but um, the RATs were one that was just arriving at that point. And uh, they were there when I was there. And since then, they've become quite rife on that site, but they were, they were not seen long before that. And this was not on any road. It was a day up river on a boat from the nearest town. They get wherever man gets because they managed somehow to tuck themselves away, in this case, in a rather narrow canoe with a a small um, motor on the back where you can pretty much see everything in there but mm. you know you just have to put a load of wood or something in leave it overnight on the riverbank something will jump in hide underneath and you'll never see it and you won't know that it's jumped out at the other end either somehow they managed to do that swimming ashore you know across a couple of hundred meters they're perfectly capable of all of these things so much as we think of many things as isolated they're not that isolated really to something that's quite clever and physically capable. And they are very, very clever animals. They're very social animals and they have a, a very good head on them. And I'm told they make very, very nice pets too. I think they do. I've heard that myself and uh, I know a few people who used to keep a pet, uh, yeah, fancy rats or whatever you want to call them. What about the, obviously quite recently we've had the issue down at uh, the Carf you mentioned there, or wiping out the, the puffins and indeed the Manx Shearwaters. There's been the well-publicised uh, eradication project down there which has been very successful. Is there truth in the fact that they can technically or would be capable of swimming from the sound across the way to the calf? It is a point of discussion. Certainly because there's Kitterland and Thuzla in the middle, that makes it perfectly possible. Um, without those, you're kind of on the borderline and previously I would have said it would be unlikely they'd swim all the way across there, but then I've seen one or two reports recently that suggest things swim a lot further, further than people used to think. Yeah. So I guess if you've got a strong rat, then anything's possible. <laughs> and what oh, about it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew he'd fall for it in the <laughs> end. <laughs> We're both damned now, I'm afraid. I think we are, actually. It's one of those curious things. that It depends. I, I know in the newsroom, for example, there are those who will tap the desk and whistle and look out the window and whatever else you do, and others who poo-poo it in no uncertain terms and say, of course you can say the word, it's nonsense. I cannot say it. I literally cannot say it. Even, you know that thing you say if you're knocking on a door? Hello? I'd have to say long tail, tat, no. tat. I, I cannot say it. You say, you say, you say what? <laughs> long tail, tat, tat. Long tail, tat, tat. <laughs> also, there is a You've book. Read that up. No, oh, I haven't. Oh. Well, I have for me. But um, there is a book by mm. Julia Donaldson. She of the Gruffalo fame. Mm. She has written one called The Highway Longtail, and her books are generally rhyming. But when I read it, 
to my children, I have to say long tail, I can't say the other word. Which tends to spawn the rhyme a little bit. The rhyme just doesn't work for some reason. But my children take great pleasure, particularly the boys, in saying this whenever they can, just sort of sneaking it in and just to see my reaction, which is always... Always. Yeah. Yeah. That was Beth knocking her head, if you wondered, and not the long tail of knock-knock who was there or whatever the other... Honestly, I can't believe that you can say it. You're Manx. Well, yes, and and I know, I mean, thankfully, uh, John Dogg's just uh, left the building uh, because he's very strong on it, and I know a few other people are. I tend not to, out of deference, really, to people who, you know, like they they really believe in it. I think, yes, I don't want to upset them, so I don't. But I'm somewhere in between. If I'm not thinking about it, I'll say it. But then if people hate it, then I think, oh, gosh, I don't want to upset them, so I won't. Even when I was reading the news, I couldn't say it. If there was a news story about it, it would still have to be long tail. The interesting thing is, uh, as we're talking to Richard there, which made me think about it, was the fact that I'm sure it feels like they've been around forever in Manx history, and yet the ones which are around now hadn't been on that island, on the island for that long, which I found uh, absolutely fascinating. And you could maybe explore more at some time on this series. It's exactly the sort of material to go into about why this whole custom is built up of not being able to say it, which I think Richard touched on as well. But uh, Yeah, interesting. Long tails. Very interesting. This is Tamagindis on Manx Radio. And you might remember over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about Sophia Morrison because it's been very recently the 160th anniversary of her birth. Last time I spoke to Dr. Brisha Madrill from Culture Van and just about why she was such an important figure in our cultural history and just how much she did um, for what we have now in terms of language and everything um, that is prospering here in the Isle of Man. Um, but she's actually buried in Peel, so I thought it would be quite a good idea to mm. go and find out exactly where. It is a very drizzly Saturday morning here in Peel. It is actually what should have been Superbike Saturday, but there's certainly no racing happening at the moment and a decision expected at four, so wait and see whether there's going to be any racing at all today. But we thought it would be the perfect time to go and find the grave of Sophia Morrison. As we heard about last week, 160 years this year since she was born, hugely important figure in the cultural life of the Isle of Man. And because my middle child has been learning about her at school and has got some idea where the grave is, I've roped him into helping me. So we'll see if we can find it. So Max, you learn about Sophia Morrison at school. Yeah. What can you tell us about her? She's dead. Yeah. And she was a famous book writer. She wrote the original Mother Do. Did she? Yeah. And she wrote Manx Fairy Tales and that book when the goblin takes off the roof. Oh, the... Um, oh. No, the brigade. That's the goblin that takes off the roof. Okay, so you have seen a photograph of her grave, haven't you? I've never seen it. So do you think you know what you're looking for? Yeah, it's like quite a tall grave and then there's like a triangle bit on top. Brilliant, okay. Confident we're finding it? Yes. So we have crossed over the road, which was pretty treacherous in itself, but anyway, and here we are. And Max, where do you think it might be? Just up the straight there with the bars around it. Okay. It would be very impressive if you find it first time because I didn't realise just how big this graveyard was and isn't it amazing you think about all these amazing people who are here i didn't think it would be this big because i always when we're driving past we normally just drive past this was the first time i've walked here and um, you just see the front part 
Now we've just walked here. So this is the older part. So you've only ever seen a photograph of it? Yeah. And that was in year two, but I still remember what it looks like. Yeah. Hey. One time she got, um, she won a prize of £10. Did she? Yeah. That'd be about a thousand pounds back then. So is it one like this? It's got like the tall, a tall monument on it. Mm. Okay, let's have a look round here. The beautiful tree in front of this one. Who's that? No, that's uh, Gertrude Louise. I think it's that one there. Uh, let's have a look. So there's a big obelisk. Oh, it's a big one. This. <gasps> In memory of Sophia, well done! Daughter of Charles and Louisa Morrison, died January the 14th, 1917. Wow, gosh. Oh, that's tall. And another fact, she was born in Peel and she lived most of her life in Peel. Mount Morrison, I wonder if that's anything to do with the family. So the Morrison family were clearly very, very prominent because this is a very big obelisk and feels very nice. made of marble. And on each of the sides, there are names of people. How amazing. Well done, Max. I'm super impressed at how quick you found that. I just remember what it looked like. I knew it was one like um, one of them ones over there. But I... What do you think, Holly? Good. Um, was she mainly in, like, growing up in Manx? Is she under that? Yes. Oh, right. my gosh. Let's go out here. I'll take a photograph. Put it on the Facebook page. Then Beautiful. You check it out yourself. Brilliant commentating as ever by me there. Um, yeah. yeah. But what, did you notice... What was on the other side? No, we'll never know. <laughs> I other names, other names. I couldn't quite read them. That's mm. why I didn't read them all out. But um, did you notice when Holly asked the question, is she under there? I was like, yep, let's just move on. <laughs> Don't have any difficult conversations here. But it is one of those ones again, isn't it? Sophia Morrison, it cropped up, I think it was on Morrow or one of the programmes this week. And again, there are several in Max history who were at such... Uh, sort of massive characters in their time and you ask around now you go and do a straw poll and you ask people no idea it's really interesting is it's like Sophia Golden being the mother of Emmeline Pankhurst and she grew up here and was born here in the Isle of Man and you think that is such a key historical figure why isn't that more widely known about and you think about Emmeline Pankhurst's family growing up with Sophia and also her father Richard I think his name was who must have been so progressive for their time um, so yeah, yeah it is interesting that uh, we don't know more and the other one that always gets me perhaps the most famous one is, is Hall Kane, of course I'd of agree course, yeah. because he, again you read about him and I was involved doing a little documentary about him years ago and every so often he crops up massive massive star in his day I mean and when he died the island from all accounts ground to a standstill he was a sort of an A-lister as we call these days he mixed with movers and shakers and kings and queens and all the people who were really influential in his time now most people have hardly heard of him you know they know Creeper Castle maybe and, uh, and that's it they couldn't might possibly know one novel but he's just disappeared altogether and there was that link quite recently I think between um, Bram Stoker that Dracula is dedicated to, to Hall Kane, you know, these wonderful things. Um, and that's one I'd, I'd love to do sometime, that the remains of his writing shed 
is still there somewhere. Oh, is it really? But I think it's sort of on private land, so right. I don't know if you can get to it. So he had a little shed up the top of his garden at Agriba where he used to go and write his novels and sort of be able to enjoy the beautiful views over the Manx countryside. And I believe the sort of remnants of it or the base is still there in the undergrowth and you can see it but I don't know whether you can get to it technically without permission Well if anybody's listening and they'd like to give us such permission that would be fantastic but I think you're right I don't think in some cases over the past sort of 50 years or so enough of this has been passed down through education mm. I guess but there is a massive move to, and shift to change that now um, interestingly Manx Fairy Tales which I discovered on my bookshelf at home which mm. I didn't even realise mm. we had um, the the copy that I've got was one illustrated by Archibald Knox which is just incredible absolutely amazing Speaking of amazing then, um, that takes us on to the challenge, which oh, we're actually yeah. going to do at the point of recording today. So uh, we have Ben here who is go going to go video f- it for us and it will be available on the Manx Radio Facebook page. So uh, get that video going. Once again, uh, we have to thank Howard for whatever the challenge is going to be. I've got no idea what it is, except there is a photograph of what looks like, I don't know, is it a whippet or a greyhound on the table? And it's been cut into several bits. Yeah. Strips, I suppose you'd right. call it, wouldn't you? Okay. Um, and and uh, again, I haven't really tried this before, but I saw it and thought, that's quite a, a clever one, isn't it? So this is the best I could do in the limited time and resources we have for this programme, uh, i.e. zero. Um, so <clears throat> ideally you'd have a, a bigger picture, full colour, and ideally you'd run it through something like a uh, one of those slicing machines or, you know, the machines that make pasta strips, something like that, so you get really even strips. Right, so but this just, is the Max Radio version. This is the Max Radio version, okay. i.e. cheap. That's the word we're after. So here we are. It's a picture of the dog. I don't know what it is. A whip of a nice clear cut. So can you turn that uh, one dog into two dogs? <laughs> and uh, the answer is you might be able to. So what you're going to try and do now is they're cut into strips. So carefully push the first strip up and pull the second strip down. So push the first one away if you're up there and the second one right down. So this one comes right up towards me. Okay. And then right the way up down there. Move right, my so mic over here. Go up there and down there. Right. And then do the, do same, the same again and then sort of join them up and see what happens. So you pull them along. So you need to join them right up so you sort of join the lines, as it were. I'll do that in a minute. Let me just move them. Okay. Oopsies. That's it. You go up, down, up, down. That's right. If I get this the wrong way round. No, that's right. It's up, down, up. uh, You've got to do it the same way. Have you got it the same way round? I don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness knows what kind of dog we're going to have here. Okay. I don't know if you've got them all the same way round. So you've got to join the lines up. (laughs) Now then, whatever. Yeah. This is where we're thankful that Beth didn't go in for plastic surgery. <laughs> Lord knows what we could look like. Oh, well, we're sort of halfway there. I think. I think one, <laughs> it looks more like a meerkat. But yeah, I think I... one or two of them you might have pulled bomb or, or swapped over a little bit. Oh. But I don't know. We think we're still getting this vague idea here. Okay. I think I could be wrong, but I think the last couple you might have got. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're sort of half there. I do think you got some of them upside down a little bit. <laughs> you get the vague idea there. I don't know whether it's totally it's totally worked. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, I this think video last, is going to be worth watching. I think the last few strips you might have <laughs> right, pulled okay. one, one, one way or the other. But you can right. see basically what happens. If I move them over. You could try, I guess. And that you would think it would just jumble the whole thing up, but what actually happens, and if you get it really evenly, you you end up basically with two smaller pictures of the same thing, which you wouldn't think would be possible, would you? Well, and indeed, if Beth's doing it, it's not possible. You end up with one sort of small dog and a <laughs> creature which looks like it's had its head trapped in a vice. 
But we got, oh, well, the, we got the gist of it. Yes. I mean, Did you get was, the gist of it? You saw. That was brilliant. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Anyway, I think we should probably move on. The video will be uploaded. Maybe we should have a go at it when it's... Um, have another go, yeah, and see. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway. You're on the right, like, right lines there. But you do have something else in any case, and it's something safe you can try to... <laughs> yes, you certainly can. Uh, this is Tamagindis on Manx Radio. We've just learnt never to do a challenge as we are recording the programme. Um, last week, I was talking to James Franklin from Culture Vannin, and at the end of the recording where we heard about how the wren became king of the birds, he rather cryptically said something about a giant's grave. We're back to St John's. So, with James Franklin once again uh, standing on St John's Fairfield, just at the foot of Timwood Hill. And last time, you mentioned rather cryptically the Giant's Grave. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Giant's Grave is, of course, a grave of a giant. OK, that seems to make sense. Is it just the one just around the corner? Can we see it from if we just walk around the corner here? Um, because whenever I used to go to Timwood Mills as a child... I think this is a place that I was absolutely fascinated with because there is a, a plaque on it, isn't there? Yeah, there is. It's in archaeologists will tell us that it's a Bronze Age burial mound, and it was found in 1848 when they enlarged this road going from St John's here down to Tinnell Mills, and they just cut into this mound, and the road now, part of the wall of the road, is this Bronze Age burial kist. And what a kist is, it's like a stone coffin in which they would have put cremated remains of, of the person. And of course it would be something very significant because they didn't dig into a mound, they built a mound over a grave. So it was a massive amount of effort. And they say that the bottom of the grave was lined with these white pebbles, which were always a significant thing in, in these days. And it still remains so in that the Peel fishermen won't or didn't used to have white stones as ballasts in their boat. And so this sense of a significant meaning of the stones was there from the Bronze Age through till modern times. So what do we know about who's buried here then? We don't know anything at all. But we do know that it's referred to as um, the Giant's Grave. There are quite a few giant's graves, which is very interesting in that clearly the Manx people knew, even when they hadn't dug into it, that this was a significant thing and that it was a grave. And local St John's people will know it as King Ori's grave, which itself is quite interesting. Oh, because there's a King Ori's grave that I, that I would refer to would be the one in Laxey. Oh, yeah. But there's lots of um, King Ori's graves all around. That's just the most famous one. There's actually a King Ori's grave behind Peel Castle, if you know where you're looking. And there's a few others around about. There's a few in Mackled and elsewhere. But this one, and these are all, often when you look into it, King Ori is seen as a giant. And so you often get tales of the giant King Ori throwing rocks from the top of North Brule into, into the sea and things like this. It's all a bit strange. But there's an idea that perhaps this comes from the idea of King Ari being the big man, which in Manx, Moor, can mean both big in significance and in size. And so that sort of confusion will often exaggerate a significant person into being a big person until you get the most significant person, being King Ari, becoming a giant.
And that's just a great example of the way stories are passed down, isn't it? Yeah, getting better and better as the time goes on. Getting better and better as the time goes on. A bit like this programme, really. Uh, we have reached the time of the programme where we take a delve in the archive. As we keep on saying, just so much material here at the room at the bottom of the corridor where we're recording this. And it's just fascinating. You literally just go in, find a shelf, pluck something off it and see what's on it. I have a cassette tape today, just it labelled TT Highlights 1967. So pretty timely, really. It's very timely, yeah. Great. You went into the TT box. Do you want me to hit the button? Hit the button. Let's see. Reach over. Here we go. Let's lift up the fader. By the last bridge, Mike Hailwood was third on the road, as Ken Leese now describes. It is number one, Ralph Ryan. Goes through over the last bridge now. And two more, very, very close behind them. Number two and number seven. Number seven, Mike Hillwood. Right from the trail of Dusty Woodman. So that is three. Number one, Bill Bryan. Number seven, Hailwood. And number two, Woodman have gone through. Followed by number... Uh, number ten, Bill Ivey on the Yamaha. What a strap. So I... And here comes number three. Budahashi on the other Yamaha. Well, by the time the leading riders had topped the tortuous mountain climb for the first time, Mike Hellwood led the race and was also first on the road. Ian Cannell now takes up the story. He's more interested today in knowing about his TT performance and the first machine is round the veranda, about a mile and a half away to my right. For listeners who have just tuned into Manx Radio, I can see the riders flashing round the veranda about a mile and a half away. There are two riders in close company following and the first machine will now be rounding the fast left-hand bend at the Les Grand Memorial. Just incredible. And I really don't think, unless you've ever done that job, you appreciate just how difficult it must be to be a TT commentator. But they really do capture the atmosphere just as much now as they certainly did then. Ian Cannell, you heard there, the voice of Peter Neal introducing them, and also before that, Ken Lease as well. But Mike Halewood, wow, that would have been a time to watch. Well, you know what? I was watching around about that time. That One of my earliest memories is watching the classic TT with Agostini and Halewood. And more interesting, I was talking to our own John Johnny Moss about this quite recently, and it turned out we were only a few yards away. I was watching on Dad's shoulders at Signpost Corner. He was just down the road at Hillbury with his dad. How amazing. That's absolutely brilliant. Oh, well, we will be back next week with plenty, plenty more of I Wonder What. (laughs) I wonder indeed. And you know what? I even forgot to mention that we've been speaking to Charles Gard about that. We'll find out next week. Look out yourselves. Cheerio. Bye-bye.